1: indeed found no proscenium, the voice of everything immersive. I'm Noah Nelson, and welcome to episode 415 wow, of our ongoing exploration of the immersive cosmos. This week, No Pro Arts editor Laura Hess hops into the host chair for a conversation with New England curator Leah Davis and London curator Shelley Snyder. The topic at hand, a look at installation art and how different environments impact audience engagement. For this time out, the crew will focus on Outernet's now building installations in London and works at Mass MoCA in Western Massachusetts. And after our main segment, some thoughts from me on the big news of the week, the closure of Sleep No More in New York, and what that says about the state of immersive theater in 2023. Before we get into all that, a reminder that I'll be giving a tour of the Immersive Cosmos, in the form of a talk, at LDI in Las Vegas at the beginning of next month. The conference starts on the last weekend of November, and we've got a discount code, Speaker23, for those who want to check out the ultimate sandbox for live event gearheads, creatives, and innovators that is LDI. Check the link in the show notes. One last thing before we head into the show proper. We have one new member this week, Gerard Krause. Thank you, Gerard, for keeping us in the fight. Uh, thanks to the churn, we are now a little farther away from our next milestone of 450 backers than we were last week. We're standing at 434, so we, I think we've slipped about two down. We got to get there, folks. I know so many of you are already backers, so this is this is a little change. Not trying to hit you up for money, although I'll, I'll give the link for those who haven't, you know, become backers yet. But the thing that really helps—that helps, helps immensely—the thing that that started us off ten years ago when we started NoPro in January of twenty fourteen. Uh, so it's coming up. Uh, the thing that that we did then was just had everybody tell one person. So help spread the word of what we do. Share the podcast, the call sheet, the review rundown, our coming soon now playing features. Share those across social media and with your friends who you think are interested or could benefit from it. Tag us on social when you do. Let us know that you're out there and you're you're giving us the signal boost. We love to see it. We love to signal boost our signal boosting. We are always no proscenium, except on Insta and on threads where we are no underscore proscenium. The first word in social media is social, and none of this works without the support of our community. And if you haven't become a backer yet, swing over to patreon.com slash no proscenium. That will connect you with our discord, guarantee you access to the newsletter going forward, and some other fun perks we have brewing. We're in the lab. We're making things. As always, Big thanks to our sustaining backers, Samuel Mistry, Chris Woolman, Samantha Davison, Eric Shamlin, Elaine, Daryl, John Boulette, Cameo Wood, Jay Bushman, Jerome Joseph Genties, Kurt Collins, Winthorne, Ryan, David Bassick, Richard Ayers, Lonnie Hanson, Lekker LaCool, the Ministry of Peculiarities, and Jan Budman. And if you've got something special you want to share with our community, hit me up at noahatnopercydium.com and we will hash it out. And now... On to the show.
0: Hello. This is a special segment on installation art. I'm Laura Hess, No Pro's arts editor, and I'm joined by my wonderful colleagues, first on the East Coast of the U.S.
2: Hi, hi. I'm Leah Davis senior editor
3: and New England uh, contributor for No Priscinium. And then also
0: in London.
3: Hi, I'm Shelley Snyder. I am the London curator of No Priscinium.
0: So today we're going to be talking about installations in Boston and London. We'll explore how different environments impact audience engagement and resonance. And today on the docket, we have a tech forward public installation a mysterious astronautic capsule, and a hallway devoid of physical objects, but infused with immersive sound. So we're going to get to it, and we're going to start with a space in London that opened late last year. Shelley, tell us about the Now Building.
3: The Now Building sits at the corner of Tuttenham Court Road and Oxford Street, just outside of Tottenham Court Road Station, which is an underground station that services 200,000 people a day. So when people talk about going shopping in London, they're usually going shopping on Oxford Street, and they're usually coming in and out of somewhere close to Tottenham Court Road Station. So the Outer Net Building, which opened last year, uh, a portion of it is called the Now Building. And at ground level... Open to the public uh, at most times is this huge room. Uh, I I mean, I call it a room. It's got a ceiling. It's got three walls uh, and it's just these beautiful digital displays and soundscapes. And there's also free Wi-Fi that just draw people in as they're coming in and out of the station. It's lit all day long. It's lit almost all night long. It's overwhelming in how beautiful it is.
0: And I think, actually, before uh, the MSG sphere opened, if I'm remembering correctly, these were, at the time, these were the largest LED screens in the world. So just to give some context there. Um, So, Shirley, tell me about, because we've both seen different programming at the NOW building. I was there at the end of June. Tell me what, I mean... You go by this a lot. So I want to hear what you've seen when you stopped um, and interrupted your commute and took (laughs) some time there to, to experience this. What did you see? Yeah. So
3: the now building is actually on my daily commute. I work about, I want to say a five minute walk away from the location, which means that I go by there regularly. So Often I'll only see art in passing, Uh, you know, if I'm walking towards Soho for the evening or if I'm walking to the office in the morning. Uh, But once I, you know, I intentionally went to go and stay in the space and experience it and I saw a piece called The Spaces in Between. And what this was, was it wasn't just beautiful, overwhelming digital displays of, you know, tessellated fractal images that were overwhelming and beautiful in and of themselves, there were some interactive portions to them. So the now building, you know, because it offers free Wi Fi, and it offers benches, and it has community wardens, it it's a relatively safe space to hang out and sit and wait and meet up with friends or meet up with colleagues or just kill some time. But the interactive portions of this were they've got cameras that, you know, if you stand relatively close to the screens, your shadow is cast on the artwork and, you know, tessellated shadow interactions that you can sort of, you know, you, you wave your arms around, you wave your legs around, and you're on that screen. So it's a way to sort of draw in families. It's a way to draw in kids Uh, teenagers who are hanging out in the area it's just a way to draw you into the space and not just stand around gaping at the beautiful ceiling like a bunch of turkeys caught in the rain (laughs) but it, it gives you a reason to come in and hang out and interact with the pieces and hey you know read who the artist was and what they were trying to achieve with this art piece it's really nice
0: so we're, I want to come back to spaces in between in a second. Um, one of the things which I did see while I was there, I also saw there were actually several different, um, different artworks, different digital artworks, and kind of these vignettes that were playing when I was there. I think I might have seen roughly four. So the programming is changing over time. Um, And the one that I want to talk about that was the most resonant for me is the Summer Palace. This is loosely based on the Sistine Chapel. You actually sit there and it it seems more like a a traditional like antiquities museum space. And then there is this um, thunderstorm. There's There's lightning, there's thunder. And then at the very top, as you're kind of in this open building that Shelley was describing, the very very top so i don't know what the distance is but it's like this portal opens up so you have this sistine chapel-esque vibe and art um and then and i think it's actually described this way and then you take this journey through time and space um and it feels like you are like flying through the space i was really impressed by how viscerally this grabbed me. And even though this is not a full domed experience, it really had that kind of immersion and it had that kind of dynamic effect. And people were, it would get, I stayed for a while. I wanted to stay for a full cycle of all the different vignettes. And it was incredible how many people would really pull in and congregate when the summer palace was up. So I found that one to be, for me, it utilized the space and the tech to the greatest effect. We even had, um, at one point, there was a small group of girls, I want to say four or five, who then laid down on the ground, um, kind of underneath that peak area, looking up and laughing. And I, I mean, as you're, again, kind of flying through the space, um, you know, shouting and, and screaming and very, very engaged and present. So, and for me, spaces in between, and maybe it has to do with the way the programming was structured when I was there. I didn't notice people sticking around that long. Once that came up and people realized that they could interact There was some initial engagement. And then again, maybe this was more of a duration issue, but then it would kind of tail off and people would go on their way, um, which not that there's anything wrong with that. But it was so interesting to see the difference between the presence and focus of passersby and and audiences for Mm -hmm. the Summer Palace compared to spaces in between. Yeah, what it did day seem... of the week did you go? Do you recall?
3: So I, I went on a Wednesday, okay. but I think, you know, having caught glimpses of the summer palace in transit and being envious of anyone who had a chance to catch it in its actual length. I think you're right. Uh, the spaces in between is beautiful, but there wasn't much of a narrative. There wasn't much of a journey. It was just look at these incredibly beautiful images, come and interact with them for a bit. Um, but it didn't, It didn't force me to stay very long. You know, I I hung out. I listened to the beautiful soundscapes. They were, you know, immersive and overwhelming. And then, yeah, after about, you know, five to seven minutes, I was like, okay, well, time to be on my way.
0: And what did you notice? Because I think we had um, just kind of talked very, very briefly about looking at this where, you know, I was a tourist in that capacity. You live in London full time. You're there on a Wednesday. You're seeing people who are locals, again, who might be um, on their commute. What are you seeing that sounds different? Or what did you see that sounds different from what I'm saying as a tourist late June, like kind of peak summer timeframe?
3: I mean, there's really the thing about where this this building is located. There is no slack time. There's mm. at, at best, the slack time is maybe between eight a.m. and ten thirty a.m. But anything from eleven o'clock onwards, and Oxford Street is packed full of visitors, tourists, locals. It doesn't matter. the The building's full. Um, what what sort of what sort of grated my cheese was that <laughs> there were some uh, pieces, some vignettes that the outer net posts the time and dates on when to catch them. And then there are some that they don't, that they hide inside their app. They say, Hey, do you want to come and see, you know, this show that's currently on, or you want to come and see this piece, download our app to see the times and dates. I'm like, I'm not going to do that. I, you know, I, if, if I'm just a tourist coming through and I'm interested in seeing the show, or or I have an out of date phone or I'm an older person, I'm not going to, do that. So it's unlikely that I'm going to catch the pieces that, you know, you commissioned to get displayed in your place and to draw in people. So I think that's one of the reasons why I wasn't able to catch or when intending to see something that looked cool, but I'm like, ah, God, I got to download an app to see the dates and times. I don't think so. Maybe I'll catch it when I'm going by.
0: Right. So, okay. This is great because this brings up, you know, how does that, create an immediate barrier to entry. This is public art, but that can create an immediate barrier to entry around technology. Do people even wanna take that extra bit of time to download the app? How important is it to them? So do you feel like that is creating a disconnect between who this is intended to reach And who this is actually reaching?
3: Well... Interesting you should say
0: that. Well, so the the public
3: art that they list for, you know, that list the time and dates online easy is the taster. It's like, hey, come by, see these cool things. Oh, you want more? You want the more specific thing? Download our app, which makes you part of our standard users to engage. Now, the Outer Outernet building it has music venues. It has uh, paid galleries. It has event venues, it has restaurants. So by downloading the app, then you're, you know, becoming you're on their mailing list, you're on their right. advertising base. So I think by force not for well, yeah, forcing people to download their app. That's just a way of sort of insinuating the their brand into your life and therefore you know are you the kind of person that they want to reach with that brand are you a young person with disposable income do you live in and around the london area where you can interact regularly with their venues it's interesting
0: i think this also brings up um i had mentioned before that i think there's this fantastic article, this was written in May of this year. It was published in Hyperallergic, the digital magazine, uh, digital art magazine. And it was an opinion piece and the author is Seth Rodney. And what he wrote was, are we asking too much of public art? And I think this is a fantastic conversation to have and how it relates to this app requirement if you're going to actually uh, be able to access the full program. because there are certain, I mean, I, I agree with what Sephrodny is saying that I think that in general, we approach public art as something that we want it to solve a lot of social ills. We want it to uh, beautify its surroundings. We want it to speak to a wide range of people. Uh, we also potentially with whatever the subject matter is of the art. um, We don't want to necessarily dive into past public figures or histories. There's Mm. kind of a, um, you know, whitewashing that happens. So I think it's also interesting in terms of, do we feel like public art shouldn't be asking us to download an app? Does that somehow feel like a violation of an agreement that we have in terms of our public spaces. And you'd also mentioned to me that this concept of urban lawns, and if we're really going to look at, because you're talking about how um, Outernet has, they have private venues. So they have this public space. They also have these private venues. So it's a mix of public and private. Um, And so what are we similar to like, Are we asking too much of public art, maybe a static sculpture? Uh, Maybe it's a monument. Do you feel like that applies in this case? Does this kind of violate something around our expectations of public art and what we think it should be for us? Well, so
3: the concept of the urban lawn is... Next time you're walking through a major built up district in a major city, and you look at, you know, through the glass windows, through into a huge sprawling reception floor on the ground floor with just, you know, a desk and a security guard and then a bank of elevators behind them. That is the urban lawn. That is the owners of that building saying, We have so much money that we do not need to dedicate the ground floor of our building to retail and to earning ground rent from retailers or selling anything to the public we can waste all this real estate on nothing but a giant open space just reserved for us and our people and to keep other people out and you can do that you know if you have bought a building you you could even you know not even install windows and just say the whole ground floor is just for us to mill around and look pretty in That's fine. So, for something like the Now building that has this huge open space that is, for the most part, open to the public, there are some times where they do wall it off so that they can hold private events in that giant space, but that is not very often. To open up the walls and to paint them with all these digital displays and invite the public in and give them free Wi-Fi and give them benches and give them community wardens to make it a safe place so that people don't end up I don't know graffitiing it up or peeing on it or doing drugs in it uh, is you know on the one hand if if you're a capitalist. Uh, it's a gift back to the people. It's saying, "Here, come in. You know, welcome. Here's a space for you. We we made a safe, beautiful place for you to rest." If you're a socialist, it's, "How dare you <laughs> take this space uh, and you know force me to download your app and all of that?" So it just depends on kind of what mindset you're in, whether or not you expect something back from a company that has purchased very expensive real estate in the middle of a major city.
0: Yeah, I think that this, um, I do think it'll be interesting to see how the programming evolves and how engagement evolves, because it is still a relatively new uh, building and installation. I'll be curious to see how this plays out over time. I want to segue over to Leah, since we've just been talking about primarily the public space and how are we engaging with art in that setting. Let's go to a traditional um, art museum, which is Mass MoCA, and Leah, you're going to talk about two different installations, right?
2: I am, and oh ho ho, traditional museum. Is that what you thought you were getting today? (laughs) (laughs)
0: No, I mean, let's, uh, please correct me.
3: We can't wait to be proven wrong.
2: (laughs) All right. All right. So um, y'all are in for a treat. If you haven't heard about Mass Mocha before, or even if you have, it's a fantastic space. Um, Would you guys mind if I gave you a little, a little story of Mass Mocha? (laughs) Please. More than anything in the world. Perfect. Okay. (laughs) So first of all, it's not actually in Boston. It's in North Adams, Massachusetts. Um, And I know the East Coast is small, but it's still about a two-hour, 45-minute drive away, um, drive west from Boston, in an area called the Berkshires. And the Berkshires are a mountainous area that are really well known for for being sort of pastoral, fall foliage spaces with lots of villages and classical music. And um, I I think people think of it as as quaint. Um, And in the middle of this space in North Adams is now one of the world's most interesting and uh, celebrated contemporary art spaces, Massachusetts Museum of Contemporary Art. Um, Now, it started with a giant catastrophe in 1985. The building um, that is now the Mass MoCA, the Sprague Electric Company, uh, shut down, created maybe 20% loss in um, industrial jobs in the area, leaving more than 3,000 workers unemployed. And people weren't really sure what to do next. Um, There aren't any really huge cities nearby. So this is where curator Thomas Krenz stepped in. And Krenz uh, would go on to direct the Guggenheim Museum in New York. Um, But at the time, he was a professor at Williams College. And he started working with um, an architect named Moore, to say, hey, what if we we took this space and really created an active combined space for for some of some modern art, maybe some collections? We've got some old collections that exist that are in storage that we can really like take from Williams and put into this museum. Um, but you know, let's let's see what we can do. Um, and then for the rest of the eighties, there was this presumption that Massimocha would eventually transition into becoming a more traditional uh, museum space. You know, white white walls. Um, rotating permanent exhibits, et cetera. Um, but guys, <laughs> it, it never did that. Um, so, so mass mocha today is still very large. The spaces, um, Shelley and Laura, when you were talking about the now building, but their sort of Sistine Chapel-esque space inside, there are spaces within mass mocha that are, are very much an industrial version of that. Um, in fact, when I visited last month, um, one of the buildings was uh, taken up by a an artist-made single-rider roller coaster <laughs> called the Break Run Helix by E.J. Hill. Phenomenal sp- uh, thing that you'd never be able to really put up in a, in a more traditional museum. Um, so when you're thinking about this space, think about industrial, think about exposed brick and concrete, um, think about lots of indoor-outdoor space, because it really is A campus in the same way that um, New England mills are campuses, Um, and it's also a bit labyrinthine. So you know it's not super easy. Um, the 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 buildings are arranged almost in a courtyard, um, but they're not especially uniform, and it's really easy to get turned around if you're wandering through the halls and suddenly you find yourself three stories down um, across a courtyard, not knowing which way is north. so that's setting the stage for Mass Mocha today. And uh, Laura, are you ready to talk about two of the pieces that are that are ongoing there?
0: I'm so ready. Okay. <laughs>
2: this sounds awesome. I'm so awesome. excited. Oh, it is such a cool space. Well, hold on. Yeah. Okay. We thought we were ready, but we're not because I. Strap it. Well, man, I just. One of the things I find so interesting about Mass Mocha um, is that. It's a museum space, but it's not just a museum space. It's um, It was intentionally kept as this multi-purpose space that's really great for festivals. It's um, meant to, ha- to be activated both by visitors and people living their lives, um, but also by musicians' performances. Um, the Bing on a Can Loud weekend was there uh, in July, so we had a lot of experimental classical music going on. The Kronos Quartet came and played um, alongside uh, amazing sculptural installations. So it's a space that's really alive, but it's also a functional campus. There are live, um, or, or I don't know how to say it, active um, artist studios um, peppered throughout the space. There's an ice cream parlor, art vending machines, um, a barbecue joint. Um, some really fantastic restaurants. And it's also a space that has a lot of, um, Shelley, like you said about the now building, it really encourages people to come and sort of set up shop. It is safe and pristine. It feels almost like a college campus when you're there. Um, and like everybody else who is on that campus is is aligned with you. Um, you're all there for a reason. So now we're ready to talk about some of the art. <laughs> The stage is set. We wait with the stage is set. This stage is set. set. Stage right. is set. <laughs> now, I think I'd like to start. I would like to start with a piece by Julian Swartz, and um, the reason I want to start with her her piece, I think it's a 2016 piece in Harmonicity, um, the Tonal Walkway, and I want to talk about it because it's 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 baked into the mass mocha both literally and figuratively um there is a an elevated hallway um of the kind that you would see in an industri industrial building it's um tin roof wooden like thick old wood slat floors um very small windows it's not um level you know you're, you're changing elevation a bit from one side to the next say it's about i don't know 150 feet long and it's narrow you have to sort of squeeze by somebody if you're going to be walking in opposite directions Um, and it's the most expedient way to get from one of the main buildings to uh, one of the exhibition buildings and because the first time that i walked down this hallway was during um a musical performance that was outdoors at the time, and I could, I could kind of hear it off in the distance, um, I didn't immediately realize that I was walking through an art piece. Um, in fact, I didn't even stop to think that I was practically forced to experience this art piece if I wanted to continue exploring the building. Um, and, you know, there's a museum, it's, 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 a, it's a museum, it's also a cultural community space. So there's lots of flyers up on the wall you know you might see something for a yoga studio (laughs) or um, tutoring your kid in French Um, and I wasn't paying too much attention to the sign that was in front of this hallway Um, I realized later in the day that um, it was the artist's statement and it explained what I was hearing because the first time I was walking down this hallway I was completely alone and I thought I was listening to music outside to the bustle of a handful of people outside but I could not get over the feeling that there was somebody just over just behind me out of, out of sight, that maybe there was somebody walking in the hallway with me and it was spine tingling, um, but not scary.
0: What did this I don't think... sound like? So, uh, oh, so that people can yeah. kind of imagine. Um, well,
2: I would love, okay. You know what, if we're lucky, we'll be able to get a clip of this at the end of this segment. Um, but it's a 20 channel soundtrack um, that rotates. It's about 13 minutes long and it is all human voices. Um, most of them aren't saying anything. These are human voices who are translating emotion, um, into sound. Some of them are professional, some are not, some are children, some are adults. Um, and the sound is thrown, it it creates a spatial soundscape so that, um, the sound might move faster than a human might move. Um, or maybe it's popping up in one place and then in another place. Um, and it sounds at first a bit eerie, sort of like low Gregorian chanting. Um, but then as additional voices layer onto that, you're given the impression of being maybe at, um, a ghostly dinner party, (laughs) um, maybe not quite as macabre, but uh,
0: well, I think that's a good moment to interject that part. some of the voices are uh, members of Roomful of Teeth, which yes. anyone who has watched the Netflix German series Dark, they are featured on uh, those soundtracks. And it's a very kind of breathy, plosive. Um, it, 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 it It's very unnerving and saying breathy implosive doesn't sound unnerving but they have I I think even just knowing that tiny bit since I haven't experienced this in person even knowing that some of those voices are from room full of teeth I was like "Ooh, that sounds really disorienting
2: well Yes, and on paper it should be. And in fact, I'm I'm looking at the artist statement right now. I'm seeing some pictures. It looks creepy. This looks like an ambient horror movie. But I've got to tell you, it's extraordinarily comforting. Or at least I found it comforting. Um,
0: so initially, just... you feel like someone's. You're like, okay, is this is this? Am I hearing ambient sound from outside? Then you sort of felt like someone was maybe over your shoulder, or you're trying to identify where it's coming from. But once you were able to understand, you know, you realize, okay, this isn't its own installation, um, then you felt comforted. How did that shift go?
2: Well, so I think that there's something inherently interesting when immersive art um, is entered into without the explicit contract between the artist and the experiencer. Um, and mass mocha does this thing really well because art immersion and experience are baked into every aspect of the building of the space. And there are spaces where you go and you're looking at art and you just know you're looking at art. You know, you've got a framed painting on the wall or what have you. Um, but there are spaces also where you might not realize that the thing that you're experiencing was intentional and curated and for you until after the fact. So for me, um, I was already in a curiosity mindset within the space, and although I was not processing that I was hearing a particular sound that was affiliated with this space directly, I was curious about what it was. And when I, when that light bulb went off, and I realized that I was, you know, it's happening now. The immersive, the immersive art is happening right now around me. I cannot express the amount of delight I felt, um, and I must have gone back up and down that hallway half a dozen times before I moved on
0: (laughs) to look at the next
2: exhibit. Um,
0: So this actually introduces a a great question. There is, and I'm going to um, reference something else that people may or may not know about. In New York, in Times Square, there is a public art installation. There is no signage. Um, It is just sound. And it is actually coming, it's called Times Square. It's by, the artist is Max Newhouse. And it is a uh, sound that is coming up from the subway grates. And so this is something where once you, it's kind of this interesting hum. Again, you're not sure, is it, is it the subway itself? But this is available to the public at any time that they are in Times Square. Again, no signage. How do you feel like this installation that you're talking about at Mass Mocha? and that specific choice to make this sound driven. Do you feel like these are for different audiences? If we're kind of again, dissecting public versus private, what is the impact there, do you think?
2: I do, I do think it's for different audiences. And I think that um, (laughs) while I was delighted and didn't realize in the specific that I was experiencing an art installation, I had entered that contract by Coming into Mass mocha. so I was already in a museum, and I was in a space where people are expecting to be challenged a bit, and maybe are looking for things um, to experience, and that's not always the case um, in public spaces. Although, let me let me change my, my tune a little bit because maybe they are, maybe this, these kinds of arts are for the same people. Um, But, but the the the, the piece that you're talking about is just by definition going to have a much wider audience. Um, Does that make sense? You're going to hit ninety percent of people that it's not for, and then. Well,
0: in a way, yes. But this is where I think this is so interesting because you, as you're saying, you already entered into this contract. With Mass MoCA, you you show up there, that is your target destination. You know that you're going to experience installation art um, or art of various kinds. And in Times Square, many people don't know that this is there. And if they hear the hum, they may at first just think, again, it's industrial, maybe it's the subway. Um, So I think that while there certainly is a larger volume of the public moving around that space, it's interesting that there is no signage at all. So there's no indication that you've entered into a space where there is an art installation. And I think that dichotomy is interesting when, again, you're, you know, that you're coming into a space where you're going to have these experiences, you know, maybe not knowing like how much something might resonate or the process of discovery like yours was with this installation. Um, yeah. That's any final a thoughts really... about that before we segue over to the, to the other one?
2: No, because that's a great transition to Michael Oatman's piece. Great. Um, perfect. Because discovery is the name of the game here. Um, so Michael Oatman has, uh, he's um, primarily a collage and architectural artist um, who usually does pieces that uh, are very evocative of an individual story and, um, almost like set dressing. So an immersive imagine immersive theater without any actors. Um, Oh no, this is even better. It's like real life mist is the kind of stuff he does. (laughs) Um, And usually his pieces are meant to be removed or or disassembled and taken down after a period of time. But all utopias fell is um, permanent at mass mocha and Um, I've got to say it's phenomenal. I did not know that it existed until I found it. So this was another moment of discovery for me. um, And that's intentional on Oatman's part. Um, Sure, there's signage. You can find information about it at the museum. Um, But I came aware of a bunch of other installations and not aware of this particular one. Um, So this is... One piece made up of three smaller pieces, um, but really what it looks like is uh, a silver Airstream trailer, 1970s-esque, that has crash landed on top of a large metal structure um, outside of a derelict industrial building. So this piece is entirely outside. You have to climb a number of metal, rusty metal great stairs to get there. Um, it's not entirely clear what you're meant to do, whether you're allowed to go in, etc. cetera. Um, but Oatman himself says, part of the intention of the piece is you really do have to, to figure it out. You've got to figure out how to get up there. You've got to figure out what it's about. And once you do get up there, um, what you see is, oh gosh. Okay, so when Oatman was putting this together, He wanted to put himself in the mindset of somebody who had crash landed um, in a future apocalypse type space. So he stopped cutting his hair. He locked himself in the Airstream trailer for a couple of days and tried to put himself in the mindset of a Buck Rogers style, pulp fiction spaceman. And then he created a space that looks so lived in, a combination of lab and living space and studio Um, that has as much information as one man could possibly hold on to about human existence and what humans might need to create a new society, Um, books about agriculture and uh, samples of dirt, um, but then also just dream catchers. And, And it looks viscerally like when you step into the space, like whoever's living there just stepped out and you know said, oh, I'm, I'm going to be right back in just a minute. But now it's 30 years later and you're still not entirely sure when he's coming back. Um, and what's so amazing about this space is how loosely Oatman holds it. There are no guards up here. There are no curators. I think there's an infamous... Uh, uh, interview with him where he says oh yeah we know that some security people have had amorous connections up in this space we know people uh take things and leave That's things one way to and... connect well right <laughs> but but he's not mad about it because i think this is something that Masmoka and and now oatman do so well which is they rely on on the participant on, on the person experiencing the piece to really activate it um
0: so it feels like, if I may, like, what, yeah. and just to give a, a visual to viewers, for anybody that knows uh, City Museum in St. Louis, the this Airstream and these like parachutes that are attached to it, like from the outside, there's kind of a resemblance, at least from what I've seen online, between um, some of the like the the plane, the bus, uh, these exterior spaces that are part of City Museum. But I think this actually this installation. Um, And I think we would even talked about maybe doing this in a slightly different order today. And yet today's order, I think, worked out perfectly because it sounds like this installation is a fascinating mix of at least feeling both public and private based on the way it sounds like you're arriving to it, your process of discovery. Um, And I think that that is such an interesting crux of of this, this intersection that we're talking about between public and private. Is there anything else, Leah, before we kind of wrap this up, is there anything else about that discovery process that you want to cite?
2: Only that I think I could go back and spend a whole day just in All Utopias Fell. Um, There are a few different components of the piece, including um, a subcomponent called the Library of the Sun. And I referenced this earlier, but there's maybe a hundred books in there. And each one of them looks so fascinating Um, and I just desperately want to go take a handful of those and lay back in the pilot seat, surrounded by dream catchers, watching clips of solar tests while the, the handmade, um, collage and stained glass of, of raccoons, uh, trying to hack into garbage cans, (laughs) like sits behind me and the sun comes in the windows. That's, that's. It's such an interesting evocative space. I love the idea that I could sit there forever and still feel like there's more, more to explore, um, and that everyone's going to get something different out of it.
0: That I mean, and for all of the fans of, of various productions that we've talked about before, you know, probably Sleep No More being a very easy reference. Like the level of detail in that kind of uh, design is always so rich to rifle through and, again, to see what lands with you. Uh, Shelley, you had mentioned a quote that I was unfamiliar with by a major artist, but it really ties in beautifully to this conversation. Will you tell us that quote?
3: (laughs) Yes, uh, it is. Music is how we decorate time and art is how we decorate space. And so this whole conversation around experiential and immersive art is not as pretentious as it sounds to some Uh, art is anywhere where the human hand has changed the visual outlook of something or the, the sounds basically anywhere where humans have changed something to look different than it would have looked naturally. So anywhere where you pass through space where that's happened, you are experiencing environmental immersive art. And so where we are talking about falls where an audience is aware of it and is possibly having a role to play in it.
0: And I think that's what we're all craving more and more of and having these these spaces, these installations where, whether they're permanent, whether they're ongoing, whether they are for a limited time. I think in general, we really underestimate, or maybe I should not say like we, I don't know if it is, um, you know, more of these like local governments. I mean, I wish that we had more of these spaces where people can choose to come back to over time and really whether it is this uh, kind of you know, astronautic capsule experience at mass MoCA that Leah's saying she wants to go back to over time and keep discovering. And I think we need to elevate our public spaces more and more into that realm of offering people, whether it's on a commute, whether it's more of a destination, but I think these are three fantastic examples of how our environment really shapes us. So, uh,
2: yeah, I just, uh, you know what, I just want more people to, to get curious and think about all the ways that immersive experience exists around us all the time. And if, if we can help do that, then A plus. More art, more experience. Let's do it.
0: A hundred percent. Great. Thank you both so much. This was such a fun conversation, and I hope we get to do more and unpack other installations and experiences down the road.
1: Once again, I want to thank Laura, Leah, and Shelly for running the table today. Uh, you can find links to everything uh, they talked about in terms of the installations, uh, the, the locations, and uh, also I'm going to throw in that, uh, that article. That, uh laura was talking about there'll be a link in the show notes for that as well i've got that on a different page in my notes so i'm like oh yeah that article you know by the guy they were talking about for a second there uh it's if i if i switch tabs but i'm not gonna switch tabs um not gonna switch tabs because it uh there was a big piece of news this week uh there was there was actually a couple of pieces of news this week uh but the big one by far uh was uh, the closure of sleep no more in New York. Uh, That'll be happening at the end of January. Uh, This after, by the time the last show runs, uh, it will have had, uh, I think, over 5,000 runs will have taken place over the course of 13 years uh, when you count the pandemic year of of everything being paused. Uh, So running for 11, 12 years worth worth of doing the show. And over 2 million tickets will've been sold over the, that tar- time. Um, what's interesting is this is this is landing in a couple different ways. I think a lot of a lot of fans or some fans particularly super fans of sleep no more who maybe and definitely ones who aren't you know part of you know fans of like immersive as a whole they're completely bummed right like their favorite thing is going away uh much the way that so many people were broken-hearted when star cruiser closed and the way a lot of people were uh discomfited when the burnt city closed you see a pattern here this year there's a lot of closures there's a lot of there's a lot of churn happening right now and some folks want to read into this that well You know, large form immersive theater is done. Um, Look, large form immersive theater is never easy. Uh, If it was, uh, there'd be a lot more of it all around. Punch Drunk in particular has tried really hard to bring shows to many a place, Los Angeles included, and found it very difficult to get all the pieces to fit together the way you need them to. So much of the problem is on the real estate and permitting side of things. And there's, in the articles, to, to get back to Sleep No More, in the articles about Sleep No More, uh, there are some quotes uh, from the producing team that is immersive, uh, different than Punch Drunk. There's a relationship between these two, but immersive is who has the rights and who produces Sleep No More in New York City. Um, about the cost of the show, just kind of kind of going up beyond what is you know, probably sustainable or profitable for them uh, and about not wanting to raise ticket prices. Uh, although I gotta admit that one made me raise my eyebrows a little bit because while Sleep No More is quite expensive uh, relative to what it used to be, it's like $180 right now, uh, there's also a lot of shows in a lot of places here in Los Angeles as well that don't deliver nearly on the level uh, that uh, Sleep No More does. Uh, that are charging that much. <laughs> so, I'm a little bit like, "Oh, is that is that really the, the, the problem? Uh, what what the what what New York ticket prices can sustain? I think we definitely know that New York live entertainment in New York as a whole, Broadway as a whole, it, you know, and and sleep nowhere is off-Broadway, but the entire, you know, ecosystem of going to a show in New York has really not sprung back. From the pandemic era, like big hits are still big hits. Uh, And it's not as if live entertainment as a whole isn't a thing people aren't willing to go out of their way for and spend a lot of money for Taylor Swift and Beyonce say hi. So a bit of a question of like, well, what's going on? And there's there's some in the micro of Sleep No More and there's some in the macro of that we saw that Here Lies Love, uh, is, you know, did not work on Broadway and K-pop before that did not work on Broadway. And whereas Sleep No More is off Broadway, uh, you know, didn't, you know, is, is closing. Uh, immersive Gatsby didn't work in New York, worked in London for a long time, didn't work in New York. Uh, what What's some of the stuff that's going on here? So in the micro of Sleep No More, some of the shipboard scuttlebutt has it that, you know, the The lease on the building is coming up in 2025, uh, and there, you know, might be some stuff in the building that needs being fixed. We know that Immersive has been looking for another venue to do another show. Uh, they had some NIMBY problems uh, with with a venue that they had picked out in New York, so they lost that one uh, to the local council. Uh, so these are the the kind of constant. Problems with immersive, um, which we acknowledge are a problem and there needs to be structural and institutional changes in order to make this work happen, because there is a demand for it. We we know there is because we see it when we go to shows. And we see it when a show gets announced that like, oh, the show is closing and then instantly the closing dates sell out. Just whoomp, Right. The demand is there, Th- you know, threaten to take it away and everyone wants to go. Right. You know, that happened with Star Cruiser, you know, maintaining the market uh, is is something you got to do. When Here Lies Love closed, one of the things the producers there said was that, you know, you, you got to develop the market for this. It's not just snapping your fingers. Right. Immersive is not magic beans. Once you get people in the door, it's magic beans. But getting people to the door, that's an entirely different set of problems. And and honestly, one I think we're going to spend more time focusing on uh, ourselves uh, since we, you know, we we have a fan channel here uh, and we're kind of uniquely positioned to do some of that work. Uh, Even if maybe in my heart of hearts, I, you know, I enjoy teaching students at CalArts about how (laughs) More than I do necessarily about figuring out Facebook's latest algorithm. Um, But I want everyone to be clear on two things when it comes to Sleep No More in particular. One, it had an absolutely incredible run. 13 years, 5,000 shows, 2 million tickets. Most shows in New York don't have that kind of longevity. You know, like that's when you're starting to get to your phantoms, right? Phantom came back after a pandemic and didn't last as long, right? Like sleep no more out, outraced phantom. Um, there's also a level where, you know, a bit of taking it for granted, right? Oh, it's there. It's always there. Uh, and things indeed have changed, um. And then the other side of it being, you know, the actual particulars of that building and whatever might be going on behind the scenes with that building that we are or are not privy to. I also just really can't imagine that without a major tenant attraction show in there, that even with all the other shows and all the parties that they do, that that it's going to that they'll hold on to it for very long uh, past the closure of Sleep No More. Probably to the end of the lease, um, but that is speculation on my part, and I have not sat down with Randy Weiner and had a conversation about well, what are you going to do with the building, man. Um, that has not occurred, but that's a that's a you know I think it's a pretty good guess there. Now, looking at here lies love, looking at here lies love, looking at burnt city, looking at. Immersive Gatsby, looking at Star Cruiser, right, and Star Cruiser being a, a beast of a different color because of the the price point, and that it was an overnight adventure. But again, we find ourselves in this position where we're seeing a big swing close. I remind everybody that entertainment is a hits business, and when you get a hit, you last for thirteen years, and when you don't get a hit, you don't <laughs> you don't last for thirteen years. The economic particularities of immersive are pretty intense. I won't sit here and well, maybe I'll do a little second guessing. Uh, I'm not gonna sit here and second guess, uh, the here lies love production. Look, they spent a lot of money converting a Broadway theater into something that it wasn't and then found that the Broadway audience wasn't interested in something that wasn't Broadway theater. Um, Whereas it did well in London and it did well in its off-Broadway run. It had it had time to leave in Seattle. Like that show has an audience for it. It's just not necessarily the Broadway audience, much in the same way that Immersive Gatsby had an audience for it. It just maybe wasn't necessarily the New York audience. also heard some tale that some stuff had gotten changed in the show from London to New York uh, and maybe wasn't as enjoyable as it was in London. I think... Particularly in the case of Here Lies Love, where it was kind of a, a concert experience, uh, where depending on your point of view, being down like in the, in the pit, in the standing area, like either did or didn't make it feel more immersive, uh, that, that sort of neither fish nor fowl construction uh, creates an issue. Uh, do, are you making something for the people who want to dive in? Uh, who want to get involved in the story, in the story world, who want to explore, or are you making stuff for people who want to see a show? And what Sleep No More teaches us is that you can create spectacle uh, and give people agency, a very limited set of agency to move around. And people will eat that up for a very, very, very long time. But if you're just kind of changing the seating arrangements, that that might not necessarily give people what it is they're looking for when they're looking for things that are immersive. You might still find yourself more immersed. I know Andrew Hefner of Houseworld just went to see it recently and was like, Oh, Hey, yeah, this is, this is, you know, I felt immersed. Uh, and, and that's subjectively, completely valid, right? You know, you felt more connected to the piece because of being in a concert relationship with the material. That said, someone who is trained on Sleep No More (laughs) goes to it and is like, oh, I'm just standing here. So there's there's some questions here in terms of like what's being offered up to people and labeled as immersive, I think we find all the time. But I do want to acknowledge that when it comes to finding venues for the work dealing with the truly hard problem of the way real estate and venues and performing arts centers are are structured in the United States right there's a slightly better time of it in England i want to say slightly because i know plenty of producers have struggles there finding locations But we have some unique challenges here in the States and need to be working on those as a community. And by working on it, I don't just mean wishing hard. I mean, there's work that needs to be done reaching out into cities, into their infrastructure, into figuring out the permitting situations, in in informing city governments about what the value of this work is. And helping them help us make connections into the folks who have land and who have real estate projects and who have, you know, storefront space that they're, that they, they want to get activated. And then on top of that, there's the complication of sometimes those landlords might be willing to roll with you, but their leases, because they have leases too. They they have loans uh that they're paying to uh the bank, right? So I guess that lease their mortgage. Their mortgage. We lease, they mortgage, right? And the bank owns everything. That's that's the way of the world. Uh their mortgages maybe won't let them part with uh that storefront for less than a certain amount square footage. So it just lays fallow instead. So there's a lot of kooky things baked into the system we have that we need to find either creative ways around or to address head on. And some of them are way above our pay grade. Um, And some of it will probably come down to collectives of folks finding buildings that they can rent out on their own, that they can get a mortgage on or that they can get a lease on on their own. Without a, without a middleman, just them to the bank or you know, them, them to the person who owns the building already straight out and go from there and then work the problem that way. Uh, we know, bright spot, we know that there's folks up in Seattle uh, who have secured a building and who have every intention of doing exactly that. Uh, and uh, they are they are broader members of our community, and they're going around and trying to find work that they can program in as they create a multi-use space uh, inside Seattle. And God willing, that could become a model for other cities as well. And we could start to see, you know, many, many, many McKittricks appear around the country. And I think that's the thing that didn't happen over the course of... Sleep No More's run that should have, and I wish had, which was more people replicating that model. Not that it would have been easy, not that you could just snap your fingers and make it happen, but that model of an anchor show, bars, restaurants, other performance spaces, that model is a pretty clean model. It's the venue. It's the venue and we need those. And so that's who we've got to go out and impress are the people who can make that happen. But in terms of whether or not people want this, whether or not there's an audience for this work. Oh yeah. That gets clearer every day. I went to a show, not, not too long ago. Uh, that i wasn't having the best time at, and I thought was deeply underbaked, but I was also watching people you know folks who hadn't gone to a lot of immersive stuff just throw themselves right into it, right? You give people the barest scraps of this work and they eat it up they just they just they eat it up, not super fans even they're just looking for it. They are absolutely fascinated by the experience of interacting and moving through a piece of fiction. It is something that just inherently blows people's minds and gets them all charged up because it takes us back to that primal childhood thing. So do not count the form down for the count at all. Just know it's (laughs) bad business times across the board, but what we have on the creative level is what everybody wishes wishes they had. All right. That's enough for now. The next week's show will be our gift guide special. It'll come out along with the gift guide. Uh, uh, the timing may get a little funky. Uh, I hope to get it out on Friday, but I'm part of a wedding (laughs) that Friday. So, and I'm traveling the day before. So look, I'm busting my hump to make sure it happens. Uh, but, uh, just know, look, you may find it coming out on Saturday. I'm, 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 I'm going to try and make sure it doesn't happen that way, but I can't fully guarantee. I do have a couple hours to work in the morning, but I'm going to be on East coast time. So who knows what's going to happen with me driving around a city. I don't know. Uh, so all of that, all of that fun. Uh, that's number one, uh, Number two, uh, don't know what's the podcast afterwards. Who knows? We might have to take a, uh, a Thanksgiving week by. Uh, I hope we don't. Uh, but we have some really fun stuff lined up for afterwards. Uh, some big names, some big projects uh, to help us finish out the year. And uh, I am super excited. And I'm also super excited to connect with folks. If you're at the Immersive Immersive next week, I'm giving the k- keynote on Monday, along with Scarlett Kim, and uh, I'll be there through Tuesday evening. Hit me up, say hi. Also, I'm going to be doing a best to connect with all of the incredible Performing Arts Center people who are going to be there because we need to get our community connected with those folks. So taking this opportunity to make some connections. And with that, we hit the credits. The associate producer of this podcast is Parker Sella. Music for No Persinium is by Chris Porter of the Speakeasy Society and Solar the Podcast. Special thanks to Siobhan O'Loughlin for voicing our intro, and everything wrong with this episode is my fault. I'm Noah Nilsson, and until next time, I'll see you at the show.